Up first, though, we're going to talk about your commute. Don't know if you heard about the Lionsgate Bridge completely shutting down because a number of vehicles were, quote unquote, stalled on the causeway. When you hear stalled on a day like today, you know that is snow related. First and foremost, don't go out if you have bald tires and you can't drive in the snow. Let's start with that. But also, we should talk with an expert, right? How about a former race car driver and Michelin driving expert? Our first guest is Carl Nadeau joining us on the line to give us some driving 101 when it comes to messy, late winter, uh, crazy slushy snow driving. Carl, thanks for doing this. Absolute pleasure, Jody. It's a beautiful weather if you have the right tires under your car. Right? It's a big deal. I'm one of those uh, lucky people at my significant other. Make sure we have snow tires on our vehicle. I feel confident and yet still must drive defensively and cautiously because as we see on those viral videos on days like today, people slip sliding all over the place. It doesn't really matter if you have snow tires if somebody's coming barreling at you. Can you give us some driving 101 when it comes to driving in the snowy, slushy weather we have in Metro Vancouver right now? There's a lot of advice, but let's start by where you're looking because you, you have, as you said, you have to know what's happening around your car, not only in front of you, but behind you. Uh, since a lot of people are driving with uh, summer regular tires or all season that have a hard time coping with those kind of conditions. So you have, first of all, to look as far as you can in front of your car to see what's happening around, but you have to glance on a regular basis in the, the center and the side mirrors also to see what other people are doing. But first thing first, if you have the right tires, you get a way better day. Way better grip. It is, it is a next level of confidence. Um, but when you perhaps overnight, as I said, we're dipping below zero, it's very wet. Uh, that will freeze no matter how much sanding and salt has been put down or how much plowing happens. How much do, can you rely on winter tires when it comes to ice? Well, the difference is absolutely huge because all season tires, unfortunately, when the weather is around the freezing point or if there's a snow sludge ice on the ground, unfortunately, all season, that's where basically they start to lose their capacity while a good high quality winter tire does the job. And it's funny because last weekend, one of our friends from uh, Northern California was home and we're driving around and I have Michelin excise snow on my car. And and he was, like, amazed by how the car could accelerate, brake, turn, and do everything just like if it was summer. And it wow. was, like, minus 10. We had snow in Montreal this weekend. And basically, the tire does the job. It's your only link with the ground. So you can have all-wheel drive. You can have all the modern uh, bells and whistle and traction and stability control. But unfortunately, if your tires don't grip, you're in trouble. All right. So that is a, a, a mental note for most of us who live in an area that is considered sort of the Hawaii of Canada. It snows so rarely here. People have the excuse to not have proper winter tires. And yet here we are with yet another snow event. Uh, the climate being what it is, even those who would like to say that climate change isn't real. We're looking out the window. It seems particularly real when we're fluctuating with extremes in our weather. So perhaps a time to uh, put pardon the pun, but put snow tires into your rotation. Now, Carl, I want to go to strategic driving. And I had the yeah. opportunity uh, a, a number of years ago to go to the Skip Barber Professional Drivers Training Program at Laguna Seca. And the one big takeaway for me that they kept drilling into our heads was when in doubt, both feet out. What does that mean? 
Well, it's basically there's a lot of good things that you you learn there from sure. I'm 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 sure the the first thing was vision. It's always look where you want to go. And unfortunately, when people are in trouble, we tend to look at the dangerous stuff on the road. So mm. if somebody's spinning out in front of you, most people will focus so much on that car that they'll forget the whole environment and they'll forget that they can just avoid it by just turning a bit right, turning a bit left, and they, they would avoid the crash, but they focus on what's dangerous. Second thing, we tend to wait a lot before slowing down. And if, if you see that somebody is about to lose control in front of you, might as well start slowing down right away. And as they say, both, like both feet in, like if you have a manual car and you see that trouble's coming, you got to hit the brake as hard as you can. And we have all modern car have ABS. So if you brake in straight line, you maximize what your tires can do to help you. If you start combining turning and braking or accelerating everything at the same time, unfortunately, your, your tires loses its capacity. So if there's something that's happening, wheel, steering wheel straight as much as possible, you hit the brake, you slow down as much as you can, and then at the last second, you can decide if you can avoid the accident or basically if at least you get into the crash, might as well do it in 10 kilometers an hour instead of 100 kilometers an hour. That makes a huge difference. Big deal to drive to the elements as well. When we look at a posted speed limit, that is for ideal conditions, not snowy, wet, icy, slushy conditions. Yeah, those conditions are pretty, not only terrible, but unpredictable. Because if there's ice underneath the surface and you have slush and you have snow, those are extreme, extreme conditions. And sometimes we think that a huge snowstorm with two feet of snow on the ground is the worst. I would say what you're getting right now, it's pretty nasty. So might as well be extra careful. I would start by leaving more distance with the car in front of you. Make sure that the mirrors are adjusted properly on your car. And most people, when they adjust the mirror, they tend to to basically see the back of their car with the side mirrors. And Mm. it doesn't give you any information about what's happening around you. You already know the color of your car, so you don't have to look at it through the mirror. So open the mirror a little bit more. It's going to basically reduce the blind spot around you. So it's it's really going to help. And one more thing. Most people are going to be extremely stressed out when they drive, which is normal. Like the conditions are pretty bad. But if you feel that you're, you're holding your grip on the steering wheel, that your grip is too tight, if you feel tense in the neck, the shoulder, your back, that means you're holding the steering wheel with too much grip. And when you do, you lose all communication with your car, with the tires, with the grip. So not only can you slow down, but you can also try to relax and hold the steering wheel with the lightest possible grip so you feel what's happening under the car. 
Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. We're talking about how to navigate our way safely through the snow, the slush, the wet, the weather that we're experiencing here on the south coast of BC in the moment. It is messy driving. We are hearing about those cuffs coming down the wires at the Portman Bridge to stop from the ice bombs and snow bombs from coming down on drivers. Of course, plows are out, sanders are out. Everybody's trying their best to keep roads clear, but there's really no avoiding rush hour traffic. And that is going to happen in just a matter of a couple of hours. And I'm going to guess that people are going to want to leave work if they are at work at the office. They're going to want to leave a little early. So be ready for your commute to be one that might be a bit of a challenge. And and certainly we're getting some great advice from Carl Nadeau, former race car driver and Michelin driving school expert, helping us navigate our way through. And Carl, just before the break, you had a couple of points that I think bear reiterating. Number one was opening up your area of view, broadening out your side mirrors so you don't just see the back of your car. I love how you said that, you know the color of your car, but broaden it out so you can really see what's happening in in the lanes and the spaces on either side of you. Very important. And relax your grip on the steering wheel so you can feel what's happening with your car. Two great points that you bring forward. Is there anything else that you really feel is important that, that has to go down with uh, snow driving 101? Absolutely. Uh, One thing people tend to forget is having a a good sitting position in your car. And it's it's valid in summer, but it's especially important in those very, very specifically dangerous conditions. So first thing you do when you sit in your car, you have to make sure that you move the seat forward enough. So under really heavy braking, your leg is never going to be fully extended. So you're going to have straight strength to push on the braking pedal, and you're not going to tiptoe the the braking pedal. Then you raise the seat of your car. So when your shoulders are resting comfortably on the seat, you have like a 45-degree angle on your elbows. So that's going to give you plenty of liberty of movement. And since your shoulders are going to be resting on the seat, the precision that you need to drive in winter when it's extremely slippery, you're going to have way more precision. So combine that with a loose grip on the steering wheel and looking as far ahead as you can, and of course having the mirrors adjusted properly, that's going to give you a a lot of safety margin that you absolutely need. Great advice. Okay, we're going to the phone. 604-280-9898 is the number, or star 9898 is a free call on your cell, obviously hands-free if you're driving. Malcolm and Burnaby, welcome to the show. Uh, well, he's in my favorite snow capital of the world, in Montreal. I loved driving in the snow in Montreal. I drove the tour bus out of Toronto. It, it never bothered me. Uh, you just learn to respect the size, the weight, the vehicle you're on. But one thing I learned is that when you're coming to a stop and if you start to skid a little, I took the vehicle out of, I put it into neutral just for about two or three seconds to allow for the brake. The ABS to start to work. Then I would put it back into gear as I was slowing down. The problem with we've got is we've got this heavy, wet stuff here. The rest of the country, most of the rest of the country, got light, fluffy stuff. So when they teased us and they knew where I was from, I said, well, you come and drive out in our stuff. You won't make it. We have a unique type of snow here in the lower mainland or the west. Yeah, it's kind of like it is kind of like driving in sand, isn't it, Malcolm? It really is. And and Carl, you kind of referenced that before. There there is the varying degrees of of snow slush packed snow or or icy conditions, and it really does come back to your uh, tires, right? 
Yeah, exactly. It's funny because that, that the snow you're getting now, we're going to get it like really early in the season in Montreal. So it's October, no- November, we'll get that kind of snow. And it's the same when end of March, we're, we'll get the same condition, not just at the, the same time that you do. But right. yeah, it, it makes the using winter tire even more important in the condition that you, 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 you have. First of all, of course, a winter tire, the rubber compound will remain flexible in cold weather. So that makes a huge difference. It's better grip, but a good high quality winter tires also have a lot of sipes that basically can help evacuate the water between the asphalt and your tires. So basically the, the, the sipes, uh, they basically, they, they, they kind of suck that water. Uh, so you have much better grip, but right. yeah, like, it's totally right. Like those conditions that you have right now are awful and i would suggest like if if you work in an office and you can basically vary your your uh, working hours a little bit order in stay relaxed stay two hours more at the office let the traffic pass and then go back home so basically instead of being stuck two hours in the traffic might as well get two more hours uh, hours of work at the office and then go relax home yeah, go grab yourself a coffee and, and, and relax instead of being stressed out in the traffic mess that certainly will hit. Carl, as always, such a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for doing this. Absolute pleasure. Be careful and enjoy. Jody Vance in for Jill today and got to get right to our next guest. I'm joined by federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who has a lot to get to today. If you follow him on social media at Twitter at the Jagmeet Singh, uh, you've seen all of the tweets about grocery prices and the ceases Chinese interference and health care and Even now, the latest that just moved, if you're one of his 878,000 followers on TikTok, you're going to have to move over to the Twitter uh, because I understand that Mr. Singh will deactivate his TikTok account. We'll talk about that as well as we welcome to the program NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Thank you for doing this. Thanks so much. Sounds like a lot to get to. It is. Where would you like to begin? (laughs) I, I love you on TikTok, as so many people do. You're very entertaining. Well, uh, on the on the TikTok topic, um, it's for me not a question when it comes down to security, privacy concerns. Those that were raised by the security officials here in Canada have have led to a couple of things. One, that federal devices will no longer have Twitter, uh, TikTok on it. So we were following the House of Commons rules. Uh, no issues there. And in fact, we're going to take that pause. So I'm going to deactivate my account by the end, end of the day today. And it's important because we want to take a pause and assess if there's a way to engage with people safely on the platform. That's uh, one of my foremost concerns, safe engagement and protecting people's privacy, not just my own, but also the people that engage with me. And we'll make that assessment before we consider getting back onto it. Okay, well, follow along closely on that. It is a big story. A lot of people, that's an understatement, use these social media platforms. Now, you brought up CSIS, so let's go there next. The uh, CSIS findings uh, that there has been interference in our federal elections. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? And where should uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government uh, take this information? Where should it go from here? First reaction, it's it's deeply concerning that a foreign government is seeking to influence the politics of another country. That that's deeply concerning, and the fact that there is some serious allegations raised should give us all um, 
really serious concerns. And so what we've seen in committee, really, the parliamentary committee that's working on this, is a lot of an attempts from both the Liberals and Conservatives to try to score points on each other. The CSIS investigation uncovers that there are candidates, both in Liberal and Conservative nomination meetings, that might have been subject of, these, of this influence. And for us as New Democrats, we don't really care about scoring points on this matter. This is really about the integrity of our electoral process and about our democratic process. And right now, there's no evidence that this suggests that the outcome of the election would be different. But it does suggest some really concerning trends around nomination meetings. And we want to make sure that our democracy is protected. So that's why we're calling for an independent inquiry to get to the bottom of this and to suggest recommendations around what we can do to prevent it and strengthen our our democracy in Canada. Has it surprised you at all that the idea of an independent inquiry hasn't been embraced by uh, Prime Minister Trudeau immediately here? I am surprised because this would take it out of the partisanship in the committee, which has not been has not been helpful from from my vantage point. It's been been really just about scoring points on each other. When really, really this is a moment for us to say, what are we willing to do to protect our democracy? What are we willing to do to ensure that foreign governments aren't interfering in our democratic processes? And that's something that should not be a partisan matter. It should be something that everyone agrees is something we want to protect and strengthen and safeguard. So I I see that independent inquiry as something that removes the partisanship, makes it independent, and really focuses on solutions. Because really, the purpose for identifying this is to prevent it from happening in the future. That should be our focus. I appreciate you touching on all of these subjects because when I reached out to you initially, it was to talk to you about grocery prices and profits. So let's get to that. And I do, I thank you for this. So, so, uh, unpack for us what we are all feeling. All Canadians are feeling the pinch, some so much more than others, trying to, to live paycheck to paycheck and now barely being able to feed their themselves or their families. Ms. Vance, I think you said it really well. It, it's something that we're all experiencing in one way or another. When Canadians go into the grocery store, they are putting back things they used to buy for their family because they just can't afford it. And everyone's feeling that budget squeeze in some way or another. It's become one of the major concerns and the cost of living crisis, it's the cost of food. And we see it when we go into the grocery store one week and come back the next week, the same food item is even more expensive. So it is deeply concerning. And what makes it even worse is, while the cost of living is hurting workers, it's hurting families, it's hurting the middle class, it is benefiting the, the wealthiest CEOs of these large corporate grocery, grocery CEOs, uh, these grocery chains, who are enjoying record profits. And then it really got us thinking, well, if you've got record profits being made, not just the normal profits that were made every year, but significantly higher profits. That means that grocery stores are doing something where while the cost of living is going up, their prices aren't increasing to keep up with the cost. They're exceeding that. That's why their profits are higher. So to get to the bottom of this, we put forward a a motion to say we need to investigate food prices. We also need to have the Competition Bureau look at what's going on because as folks might remember, not too long ago in 2018, Major grocery store chains and bread producers were found to have colluded to increase the price of bread in Canada, which sounds hard to believe, but that was the finding. And, and we, we know that that's what happened. So we're worried that might be happening now. So we've summoned the CEOs of the major grocery corporate chains to come to House of Commons and answer our questions. And we want to figure out why their profits are so high, why the price of food continues to rise while other areas are seeing a bit of a softening in terms of prices and why they're making these huge profits off the backs of people who are struggling to buy their food. 
So we had Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie uh, Agri-Food uh, on yesterday, and he spoke about that bread price fixing back in 2018 that still has yet to be resolved. It was admitted That's to, right, and actually. every Canadian got a $25 gift card. I got a gift card. I donated it to the food bank, as so many of us did. But still, well no, <laughs> no consequence there, though, Mr. Singh. Like, where exactly. are we? Right. So what? to what end, I guess, is my question here, to bring these multi-millionaire if not billionaire uh, grocers to the house of commons to what end where will the consequences lie right and these are these are absolutely multi-billionaire um, companies we're talking about and and the owners are are billionaires themselves well our goal is we want to identify exactly the problem and then we want to find the solutions one of the things that we've we've come to learn based on the bread fri- bread price fixing as well as other areas is that the competition laws in Canada aren't strong enough there's not enough right. teeth They don't give Canadians enough protection. So we want to strengthen the competition laws. That means forcing companies that are too large to be broken up. Uh, That could mean things like making sure that there are stricter rules around uh, prices being set by by companies in terms of uh, potential collusion and stronger ramifications or consequences if collusion is found. But uh, what we need to do is strengthen the competition uh, Bureau of Canada so that we can strengthen protections for Canadians. We know that if left on their own, these monopolies will just get more and more powerful and have more and more control over something that is essential to Canadians. We're not talking about a luxury item. Other right. items that people purchase, you can decide to put it off for a year or put it off for a couple of months if you if you can't afford it right now or if the prices are too high. You can't make those choices with food. Food is a necessity, and that's why we need really strong protections in place so Canadians aren't being gouged or Canadians aren't being exploited in any way. And we know that it has happened already. The bread price fixing was collusion where companies got together in a very anti-competitive way and said, we're going to all increase our prices together in a way that makes life harder for Canadians and made them bigger profits. So that's one area we want to strengthen. We also want to look at the idea of an excess profit tax. It's something that other countries have done. So the United Kingdom has put it in place. Spain, Germany, European Union has done it. In terms of oil and gas sector, which are enjoying massive record high profits, and to use the the revenue as a way to help out Canadians or help out people with their with their prices with their energy costs. Similarly, we think when it comes to food prices, we could do something similar because it's clear in Canada it's pretty unique how much the the profits are going up for these large corporations and these CEOs are making huge huge benefit or huge bonuses. We want to. Uh, stop that. And so one of the ways we can do that is to to disincentivize their gouging of Canadians. When you talk about competition uh, and and tightening those rules around uh, these monopolies, it does bring me to the Shaw Rogers merger piece, because while we're talking about groceries being important, as is if ever we have learned how important connectivity is, COVID-19 has shown us that. So what do we do about that? Well, we need to stop the merger. This is going to be horrible for Canadians. It's going to mean higher prices. It's also going to mean job losses for a lot of people that work in, in those companies. When they yeah. merge, people will lose their jobs. But really, it's going to be long-term an even bigger monopoly when in Canada, we already pay some of the highest fees in the world for our internet, our cellular uh, and you know s- services. We pay some of the highest fees in the world and this merger is just going to make those prices go up even higher. For decades, the Liberal and Conservative governments have allowed these massive telecoms companies to get away with really exploiting Canadians. There's no justification for prices being so high as they are in Canada 
you look at other countries like Finland, Sweden, Norway, other cold countries that are that have population centers that are very spread apart, and their prices are far less expensive than ours. And so there's no justification for what's going on. And this merger is going to make things worse. And on top of that, the Competition Bureau had ruled they thought this was the wrong thing to do. But because it didn't have the power to stop it, they were unable to actually make this merger or end the merger. And they're actually appealing that decision in court to say, we think this is the wrong thing. This is bad for Canadians. And we are appealing the decision that, uh, that says basically that their, their ruling or their finding doesn't actually stop the merger. Another example of why we need to strengthen the Competition Bureau, when it's trying to act in the interest of Canadians, it is unable to do something as important as stop a merger. So now it's in the in the ballpark of the Liberal government, and we're putting pressure on the minister to say, if you really want to stand up Canadians, you would stop this merger. Right. So does anybody truly have the power to stop it? Yes. Right now, the minister, so the Liberal government, has complete power to uh, the final decision of this merger can say no and stop it. I asked a question directly to the minister about this thing. You do have the power. If you are interested in standing up for Canadians, you would now stop the merger. So uh, we're going to keep that pressure going. I encourage everyone uh, listening to write to your local MP. Let them know this is important. This is about our cell phone and Internet services. The fact that we pay so much, we should be paying way less. And this is only going to make the prices even higher. So uh, we're going to fight back. encourage other people to join us in in fighting back and, and say no to this merger. You know, it's a very busy time in government when we have the federal NDP leader on and Jagmeet Singh and we don't even get to health care. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I, we got to circle back. I, we got to have you back yes, on the program absolutely. to talk. Please do, because we'll I know you. Is, yeah, it was the subject of a bunch of roundtable meetings that we've been doing recently here in Winnipeg today. It was a big meeting we did around health care. We've got to keep it public. We've got to fight the for profit and we've got to make sure that people get the best quality care and the federal government's got to step up and be a real partner. All right. Thank you for your time, sir. I've kept you much longer than I promised, and I appreciate your patience. All good. It was my honor to be on. Thank you so much. All right. We have reached the moment that many of us in British Columbia have been waiting for. With bated breath, breath, we have been uh, tapping our fingers, wondering what our budget will look like. The first budget from Premier David Eby, Katrina Conroy, our um, our uh, finance minister has begun speaking. So Richard Zussman is now available out of the lockup. Richard, this is our annual event, it seems. We always talk to you as we pull you out of the room and you finally get to connect again. And then we get the details. So what do you know? They're actually letting me stay in the room this year, Jody. So wow. <laughs> lockup is over. So let's go through it. This is a big, big okay. budget here. So yeah. the renter's rebate that we've all been waiting for since it was promised in 2017 is finally here. But it is a little bit different than what the government has committed. Instead of a rebate going back to renters, it is a means-tested credit. So you'll have to file your taxes. And if you make as a household less than $60,000 a year, uh, you will receive a credit of up to $400. If you make between sixty dollars you will receive a partial credit. Any household income that is more than $80,000 will not be eligible for that renter's rebate. BC, on April 1st, will become the first jurisdiction in Canada to offer free contraception. Uh, Those are prescription contraceptives, and those advocating for it uh, say that this covers off all the bases in terms of contraceptives. Uh, that are provided through prescription. Mental health funding is coming, but there's a catch here as well. So up to a billion dollars here over the three-year plan, $586 million for treatment and recovery. 
The province will be expanding on that redfish healing center model that we see in Coquitlam. We don't know where yet, but what is missing here, Jody, is the fact that those fees that people pay will not be waived for current treatment options. There will not be fees on these new facilities. The province may be working on that, but it's not there quite yet. Those are the big ones in terms of policy. Let's talk dollars and cents. $4.2 billion deficit. So the government is willing to spend, you and I spoke about this yesterday, we anticipated there was going to be a deficit. Uh, We are getting it as the government continues to commit to spending money. That deficit will go down to $3 billion in 25-26. Economic growth numbers are important here because we know that if we start seeing the economy uh, not grow, we start getting into situations where we could experience a recession. We're not there yet. So based on what economists are predicting here from the ministry, they believe the economy will grow by just 0.4% next year. Compare that to 2.8% in this last year. But we'll see what happens in global, uh, for global economic wins. Uh, that growth will go up to 1.5% in 2024. The carbon tax is going up, and this matters because it's going to cost businesses a lot more, and it's going to cost British Columbians a lot more at the pumps. And the minister blamed this on the federal government. But what we could see, Jody, is carbon tax on gasoline as high as 37 cents a litre by 2030. It's right now about 11 cents a litre. By then, the expectation is far more people will be driving electric vehicles, but still – that is crushing on the cost of gas, and it applies to businesses. Business community is not happy with this budget. They right, say and this goods, is not cost a of goods. Yeah, That's going to so add. Oh, my goodness. Go ahead. And we're not seeing any of that there. We're not seeing any of the supports to businesses. The other key in all this, and we'll get into some of this more, and there's more, but this is a record-breaking capital spending budget. We are seeing more okay. spent on capital than ever before but we just don't have the people to do the jobs. And economists are saying, well, this isn't the right time to do this. You are going to be driving the economy through building, through government money. You don't have the people to do the jobs. This could cause more inflationary pressures. And what are you doing to find these people to do work? So yes, big spending on hospitals and schools and roadways, much needed infrastructure, but who's going to do the work and what sort of impacts could it have on inflation? Those are the Coles notes. There's lots more to get into, but let's start there. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's, let's go back to, the $4.2 billion deficit projection. And as you mentioned, we did talk about that yesterday here when we were uh, sort of forecasting, if you will. What was the last budget's deficit projection only to end in a massive surplus that swung almost equally the other way? I mean, is there... Is this really contingent on what the global economy might look like as well? Yeah, and I think part of it is... The hope is that there'll be more stability here. What happened last year uh, was that we had this unprecedented amount of money coming uh, from Ottawa and a miscalculation around the way that the CRA did things. So a lot of money got returned to British Columbia and it led to the surplus that's still being spent. Update today, the the surplus is set at $3.6 billion still. So the government can spend that right up until the end of March, and I'm sure they will. Uh, We are also got news today we are getting a housing plan at some point in the next few weeks from Minister Ravi Kalon, that no doubt will have some additional measures. The money's in this budget, but we will get the plan for what that looks like. So you have to take it here that the economists in the province are trying to be more prudent. We've come out of an unprecedented economic time with a pandemic and huge government support programs and an economy bouncing back. We are now finally getting some stability that will make it easier 
to predict what growth looks like and what deficits look like. But you're right. We could be sitting here, you and I, talking in six months or nine months from now saying, well, we just got an economic update from the province and that projected deficit is now a surplus. I think we have to think, though, of things less in deficits and surpluses. This government says they are spending. They are spending what people need, that there is good prudence here. There's huge amounts of contingencies to support all of that if things go awry. And there is a, a... a comfort here from the province. And we'll hear from Kevin Falcon a little bit later today. And I don't think he'll express that same comfort in spending no. into deficit and taking on debt. But this government is willing to do it if it means they're spending on those, those priorities. And this budget clearly does that. Health care, uh, the economy, uh, housing, housing, safety. Yeah. Those are those big core issues they're spending on. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. And it is budget day. And we're bringing Richard Zussman back in. He has been in the lockup. And now reporting on what is, Richard, an unprecedented budget when it comes to spending for health care and capital budgets. So let's dive right in on the health care because that has been so top of mind for every British Columbian, and in fact, every Canadian over the last couple of years, but trying to uh, fix or prop up or, or band-aid what we have struggled with healthcare wise uh, certainly the, the cash will be there in this budget. There is cash here, but some of the critics say that we need a more cohesive plan to understand how we're going to use community health networks, but there's a lot of money here. So there's more money for the workforce strategy to get more people into health care. There's more money, a billion dollars, to help support the payment model for doctors. There's more money for the cancer plan, $207 million. Uh, there's the support for uh, paying for prescription contraceptives that we mentioned. Uh, There is the financial support for addictions and treatment, for paying for treatment beds. So this is record-breaking healthcare spending. But one of the issues here is, yes, you can throw money at it, but how do you get the people to do the job? And that's one of the things the province is working through through its HR plan, but that solution will take time. The other point here, Jody, I'm told that we could get details as early as this week on BC's um, deal with Ottawa. We see the federal government making deals with a bunch of provinces here. BC is expected to come soon, and that will be another $600 million or so not accounted for in this budget that will be earmarked for health care. Now, you did say, uh, and just before the news to two, when we were first talking about this budget and the details were coming fast and furious, you were talking about the capital spending piece and the infrastructure, hospitals, schools, roadways, and again, the money being there, but where do you find the people to facilitate facilitate these uh, projects. Yeah, and this is going to be one of the challenges the government runs into because they don't have the solutions. They say they're working on these HR plans, but ultimately, if there aren't enough people to do it, uh, then you're not going to be able to get the work done. Part of this is about getting people in from outside of the province. BC continues to see a huge number of people migrate into the province from out of country, but business groups are still calling on the province to speed up accreditation, to incentivize workers from other parts of the world to come here to BC to work. And all of that, the pressure point is around housing, which continues to be so expensive in Metro Vancouver. So yes, lots of capital spending, and I believe those projects will get done. But what we may see are some of these projects delayed uh, because getting the work done is going to be challenging. And you know, I'm not predicting delays on any of these big projects, but we're talking about things like the new Patello, like the Massey, like transit out to Langley, like transit potentially out to UBC, but for sure the Broadway. All of that takes workers, and we need to yeah. ensure those workers are there to make sure it's done on time. And when we talk about plowing forward in this budget and there being unprecedented spends, there is only one 
taxpayers. So <laughs> this is not just government money. This is our money at work. So when we're watching this uh, unfold, mindful of the fact that the money comes from somewhere and that somewhere is us. And, and to add on top of that, the carbon tax is a big subject we're going to talk about here because it is getting ready to soar. So it's getting imposed by the federal government, but we're seeing a tripling of the carbon tax between now and 2030. And there are some credits there to support uh, individuals in the pressures that they're going to feel, but it's not a complete solution in any means. And then we're also going to see gas prices go up where we could see by 2030, 37 cents per liter on gas. So a lot of pressure points, Jody. I'm going to have to run on BC1 in a moment because the minister is about to wrap up her speech. Uh, so let me say goodbye you go ahead. now. I'm sorry to yeah. jump a little early. That's okay. I will That's continue okay. the conversation with our friend Keith on DC one here. So, but make sure okay. you stay listening to Jody. It's going to be way better than whatever <laughs> Keith and I say on TV. <laughs> <laughs>